0: Hello, it's Nick Brown, Global Health Editor for Archives of Disease and Childhood. I'm really pleased to be talking to Nikhil Bhakta, who's a fellow in haematology-oncology at St Jude's Lutheran Children's Hospital in Tennessee. Nikhil wrote a paper for the journal last year on the cost effectiveness of treating uh, paediatric cancers in low- and middle-income countries. This is a very innovative, very clever paper, using some clever health economic modelling, and his findings are very compelling. We're going to be talking around the paper and what the future holds in this area. So welcome, Nickel.
1: Thanks, Nick. It's great to be here.
0: Great. Nick, what, what was the premise when you set up this paper? What, um, what led you to, to, to embark on this piece of work?
1: Well, in a lot of ways, it actually is almost a fruition, or at least beginning, I guess, hopefully, of something larger to come. But really started with how I got interested in the topic of hematology, oncology, as well as global health itself. Uh, When I first actually started in the field, I was actually mostly working on tuberculosis and maybe some tuberculosis HIV um, operations research in Kenya. And then I did my masters and was exposed to a lot of modeling. And one of the things that always stuck in the back of my head was while I was in Kenya, it was seeing the children with Burkitt's Lymphoma and being told uh, iteratively that even though this was a relatively highly curable disease in the United States and uh, Europe, it was just expensive to treat those children in uh, settings such as Africa. So really that, that kind of line of inquiry started from that particular event. And I think what really bugged me was the question, well, why is it so expensive? We do things for tuberculosis, which is actually very, uh, very cost-effective. There are a lot of those patients can come in sick, especially when they're co-HIV infected, or you have patients with HIV, which is now a chronic illness that requires frequent monitoring as well as sometimes expensive drug regimens when you get to second, third line. And so what really kind of prompted all of this was, well, why are we making that assumption? Why do we think that it is so expensive to treat these children? Because when you think about it logically, you're talking about five, six-year-olds, especially with Burkitt lymphoma or ALL especially, and these children are generally uh, fairly healthy coming in, The treatments are relatively inexpensive because most of our chemotherapies have not changed in the last 40, 50 years. They're all generic. Uh, Most of them even are on the WHO essential medications list. And so it's really the supportive care aspects. But when you're talking about Burkitts, you're talking about supportive care in the orders of weeks to maybe a few months, depending on what protocol is used. And then when you're talking about ALL, most of it is outpatient after the first induction period. Mm. So... All of that information it just leads you to kind of ponder. Well, what? Why do we keep saying it's too expensive? Why do I? When I talk to people in the global health field, do we think it's so expensive? So then, as I got more exposed to hematology and oncology through my training, the, rather, the other quick recognition was that there wasn't anybody in the pediatric oncology field that really was talking the language of global health. So the global health field uses disability just life years, uses prioritization terminology, talks about cost-comparativeness, cost-effectiveness, whereas pediatric oncology is still very much a basic science-dominated field, is still very much a clinical field, at least in the United States. There's very few, if any, experts in global health within pediatric hematology and oncology. And what this paper hopefully sets out to do and hopefully will be the big beginning of is a larger conversation where we can introduce the field of pediatric oncology, much like adults have done to the global health community such that it at least starts being put on the agenda and that people will at least start thinking about that when they're designing their health system prioritization.
0: That's that's fascinating. It almost feels as if that had become the accepted norm that it was too expensive and no one was looking beyond that perhaps because of results. Yeah, it was, it
1: was it was a basic assumption, I yeah, think. Yeah. And you know, one does one is born because if you're a clinician and you're working in the United States you're gonna get that assumption because I mean we do spend a lot of money on patients with hematology and oncology, pediatric hematology and oncology diseases. But that's because we're pushing that envelope from ninety percent to ninety-five percent to ninety-seven percent. Well in the developing such like low and middle income country settings, what we actually have is zero percent, five percent, twenty percent, but to move that to fifty percent doesn't require significant resources. So basically going from zero to fifty Is not going to be the huge push it's going to be the high risk stem cell transplants the high-risk patients who are going to require multiple refractory chemotherapy regimens multiple other highly uh toxic regimens that will be done so that again moving beyond that 80 percent barrier so i think that we get a skewed perception based on what we're trying to do here not necessarily what we can achieve in other settings.
0: Absolutely. So the vast majority can be cured relatively cheaply. So you, yeah. you, you did some highly complex technical analyses. If, could you describe briefly how you derived your model and how you came up with these figures?
1: Well, it, it kind of actually it's very simply came from kind of what I alluded to earlier, which was, so you have a child who is five years old, and the life expectancy in many African countries is in the mid-50s to mid-60s. And cancer, if left untreated, is universally fatal for the most part, um, with a few exceptions, such as uh, 4S, neuroblastoma, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But those, again, the vast minority. So we worked on the assumption that this was going to be a universally fatal disease and that it's curable in many settings. And we set out using some of the data that's already been presented in in, uh, low- and middle-income country settings. And from there, just simply ask the question, well, if a five-year-old dies... How much lost economic productivity would occur versus if that five-year-old was given a chance and treated, and a proportion of those patients ended up surviving, mm. how much would they be, as productive citizens giving back to their society, be able to cover the medical investment that was given to them up front? Yes. And so really the the model kind of goes and uses, like you said, some technical methods, but really goes to explore that question. because. What we're really talking about is an investment in a child. I mean, the field of pediatrics is an investment in children. And in no way, shape, or form is this any different. We're really investing in that child so that they can become productive members of society. And although I can guarantee you both myself and almost every pediatrician out there hates to think about it this way, we are the, the way that the rest of the world thinks about it is, is a return on investment. And so putting it into some of those terms just to prove that that is a good return on investment was kind of the goal of the uh, of the of the model.
0: Yeah, and what sort of numbers did you come up with for those read- readers who haven't looked at the article?
1: What we actually did was um, we have given thresholds. So the costs involved in actually treating th- patients with Burkitt's lymphoma or acute lymphoblastic lymphoma in most of these settings are not well described. Most of the costs that you, well, first of all, there's very, very few papers actually talk about costs, most of the mm-hmm. largest outcomes. And those that do talk about costs give very much a fixed cost, which may not represent kind of the capital expenditures that were involved up front, may not, cost, may not necessarily give the electricity costs or the water costs that are involved um, in the hospital, for instance. So we have very, very murky costing data at this time. But what we did, what we were able to do was ask the hypothetical question, which is, the WHO tells us when intervention is cost-effective, when it is very cost-effective. These are kind of the two thresholds that it sets. And so, from there, we were able to then, assuming that these portion of patients would be cured, and based on how old they were when they were when they were uh, when they came when they were afflicted with the cancer, we were able to then project and say that this government, so we is the country of Malawi, based on their GDP per capita. Um, so we try to individually tailor it to the country rather than just kind of a general, all-world uh,
0: number.
1: Sure. Um, so if Malawi were to have a patient with Burkitt lymphoma, the cost that they could spend, in other words, how much money they could actually spend to treat that child yep. with Burkitt lymphoma, was, in order to be cost-effective on the range of 30000 to be very cost-effective $10,000 yes. per patient. And when you start looking at these numbers, um, they don't tell us, again, the actual costs, but, get, again, kind of thinking back to, well, in Malawi right now, they're doing very f- simple regimens that are in the orders of several weeks that some of them are, mono- are monotherapy with cyclophosphamide. Mm. These are regimens that are not incredibly toxic, mm. that are not incredibly expensive, um, probably require you know hospitalization and supportive care, but for a short duration of time. And given what they've published for the actual costs from their own group are so below the threshold that we have given that it begs the question, well, why are we not even looking at the costing data? Why are we making this assumption that it is too expensive?
0: So it's fascinating and um, quite startling and sobering uh, figures at the same time. And in terms of other cancers, do you think the same models would apply to them? We'd likely have had have the same findings
1: yeah I think um, I think that there are definitely certain cancers where it would Uh, there's just a lot of not much data out there at this time so I think retinoblastoma Wilms tumor even hot chicken lymphoma in certain settings uh, would actually be very uh, would be very uh, useful to kind of work through these numbers and kind of think through it Uh, there's kind of a a two-pronged approach and just kind of not to jump ahead but um, one is obviously trying to establish thresholds maybe for more countries or more cancers, um, which can be a little difficult because we don't have actual hard data. We tried to take Brazil and Malawi as case examples because we felt that they had, they had groups that had spent the most time publishing and rigorously prospectively evaluating the data. Um, but we could probably at least uh, make some decent estimates for other countries and other cancers as well. But that being said, the other part to it that is going to be necessary is to go beyond thresholds. So, I mean, I think that this starts the conversation, but the, my real goal and my real interest is to end the conversation by saying, look, when we put in our cost of comparative uh, narrative, uh, we put pediatric ALL on the list, this is where it comes up on your battery of areas of uh, priority, and this is what this is why we should start investing in these, in these models. Uh, Treatment And so that's going to require actual numbers for how much does it cost. So I think that's going to be the next step as well, is really just trying to define how much does it actually cost in each setting so that we can then go to ministries of health, to the WHO, et cetera, and say, um, here's the actual data. I know that adult cancers, for instance, I think cervical cancer has done an excellent job of of putting initial data out there using modeling in order to advocate for patients. And then now getting a lot of both outside interest groups as well as global health governance groups to really start producing national cancer control plans, producing models for treatment of care and expanding services. And I really think that's the model for uh, at least hopefully the next 20, 30 years in pediatric oncology.
0: That, that's, that's fascinating. So there's, there's hope for the future there. Is, there. is there anything else that can be done in the meantime in order to raise awareness? Are there, there fora which would enable us to do that?
1: I think uh, I think what's going on right now, you see, the state of uh, pediatric oncology is really dominated by this by this concept of twinning, which is really it's not necessarily unique to pediatric oncology in the sense that uh, it's really just a bilateral relationship between uh, organizations, one in a high income setting and the other one in a lower middle income country setting, and I think that uh, continuing to evolve those twinning models, uh, such that. Uh, Now they're becoming mature enough that a lot of them are starting to produce more papers and produce awareness. You're starting to also see patient advocacy groups start to have a component, like My Child Matters and others, or the St. Baldrick's uh, Foundation, start to have uh, global health components. So all of these things, I think, are positive steps forward. I think the biggest limitation at this point is really a new generation or cadre of individuals that, again, can bridge that global health pediatric oncology divide. Uh, and be able to kind of work within both spheres, and so um, I think the the short term is going to be really just again individuals who are able to publish literature in both of those journal settings, yeah. rather than just in the pediatric oncology setting, um, will hopefully raise awareness and start ask, start prompting people to ask questions rather than just uh, make uh, bold assumptions.
0: Nicole that's that's all fascinating, and I, I'm, I'm feeling. Optimistic having talked to you about this is obviously going to take several years to evolve, but there's there's real hope for the future.
1: I, I really think so. Yeah, yeah.
0: Thanks very much for talking about your paper, it's been fascinating.
1: Thank you, thank you for having me.